Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to answer some more listener questions. Yeah, so a few episodes ago for the 150th episode, we uh, played, we, we requested uh, audio recordings, voice recordings for people to send in questions. And we got a whole bunch of them. We got more than we could answer on that one show. And in fact, they kept coming in, which was great. <laughs> <laughs> it kept yes. coming in after the deadline. Yeah, I love that. Yes, and, and keep sending them because we like doing this. It's fun to hear everyone's voices. Uh, it feels more connected than just sort of talking into a microphone in an empty room. <laughs> so, uh, and hopefully it's helpful. Um, so today we're just going to do these in, in order that they came in. And uh, we're just going to do them cold and see surprise ourselves with whatever the question is. And we'll just both react to them in real time. All right. So the first one is from Ed Par- Panas. I almost said Parnas. Ed Panas. Hey there, Jonathan and Rochelle. Congratulations on 150 episodes. That is an amazing milestone. My question is, I know you focus primarily on marketing and tech and whatnot, but I am very soon going to be leaving a developer position to work full-time with my wife on her real estate business. She's having amazing time right now in real estate. She's been at it for five years. So it's time for me to come alongside of her and provide some marketing and tech support. And I'll be in charge of lead gen along with a lot of other things. I've been a huge fan of uh, your work and all the great information you share. So my question is, how can I apply what you folks teach to real estate? And it's even worse than real estate. It's real estate in Florida, which is an incredibly crowded space. Um, We've got our own ideas on how we want to stand out and focus on our customers and we're doing all that great work. But I want to see your input. How can someone like me, who's a tech guy, apply his skills to create amazing content and leads for real estate? Thanks so much and congrats again. Well, this is all you. (laughs) I love this question so much. Go for it. (laughs) Okay. Well, Ed, you know, the the short version is you've got to find a niche or you have to create a niche. And you can, you know, we've got lots of episodes on that, as you know, but that's where I would start because you're right. Real estate is a really crowded space. I imagine real estate in Florida is even tougher. Um, But I would start to look at, is there any commonality in the kinds of uh, buyers or sellers that your wife is attracting? Are there, uh, for example, um, is she an architect? Does she have this sort of architect's vision about property? Is she really fantastic at re-envisioning from a design perspective what you can do with a property? Is she focused on a particular period of architecture like I well, Spanish would be like one example, but I know there's a lot of that in Florida too, or modern um, architecture, modern design, um, a particular kind of client like um, people who are selling their parents' home after a death. I mean, when you think about all of those different kinds of audiences, that's where I would start is pick a, a an appropriately small enough niche that is still big enough that you can attract some clientele. I would not specialize geographically. I mean, you, you know, some people will say, oh, I specialize in this particular property. Um, I'd rather see you specialize in, in condominiums of a certain size than to say, I'm going to do this neighborhood in Boca Raton, for example. You can do that. It's just not as powerful 
as some of the other options to think about. And Jonathan, I can feel you wanting to jump in. So, I mean, this is definitely your area of expertise, but as you were talking and you started to describe some of the, the niches or the specializations, immediately I went from having no ideas for content marketing to having loads of ideas for content marketing. As soon as you started to get specific about, you know, modern architecture, I was like, oh, that would make a really cool mailing list or an Instagram feed or, uh, you know, whatever, whatever made sense for the kinds of buyers that that you were trying to attract or the the medium, you know, if it's a photographic medium or if it's a video thing, you know, maybe it's on YouTube or maybe a mailing list. Uh, I'm as a tech person. So, you know, Ed's a tech person. How can he contribute to this? I would say marketing automation. Uh, so that's probably a mailing list and obviously it needs to be of interest year round, not just, um, when someone's thinking about buying or, uh, needs, you know, is in the market to buy or sell a home. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if he said commercial or residential real estate. I assumed residential. Yeah, I did too. Um, but if you, if you imagine if, uh, if you guys set up a, Mailing. Let's say, say you specialize in you know modern architecture in Florida or uh, historic span. Or so, who knows? I don't know anything about real estate, but like pick something that she's got an unfair advantage at. You know, like something that she's sold a million of. She knows everything about it. Uh, maybe she studied the particular design in school or wrote a book on it or something. But it gives you kind of like it's the kind of thing my wife would like read every day you know, if, if it spoke to her. So if it was, if it was like, um, uh, yeah, a mailing list about a particular kind of architecture, or if, if you focused on uh, a niche kind of buyer, maybe you could find something else about their life transition or, um, you know, like Rochelle said about the, um, you know, death of a parent thing. Oh, you could write a book about that and, and drip out the content over the course of, you know, weekly email, and when someone is in the market, the first person they're going to think of is you. So, or, or if a friend is in the market, the first person that people are going to recommend is you. So, uh, and it's, it's, it's all those side things that your wife then is expert on that matter to the person. Yes. She knows how to sell a house. She knows how to how all the contractual things that happen. But if she also knows the mindset of a grieving adult child as they're selling a house and all the things they have to think about. That's really powerful. Right. And think, just think of how word of mouth would spread for that because Mm -hmm. as, as someone became, I mean, like you're now (laughs) you, Rochelle just positioned you in my mind as that. So like the next time that happens, I'm going to mistakenly think of you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's very sticky. It's very sticky. And uh, anyway, so that that's what I would do. I think I totally agree with niching down and then coming up with uh, some sort of content marketing automation. That's where you come in that would allow you to serve those people at scale uh, on a consistent, regular basis. And I just uh, want to add to this, and I know that you wouldn't do this, but I, I get so many things from different realtors and they're all the same. You know, they mm-hmm. send, and I'm sure they buy them all from the same content factory. Um, I get one from uh, the mortgage guy as well. And it's like, and it's when it's fall, here's what you do to get ready for winter. When it's spring, <laughs> here's how you do spring cleaning. It's like, don't do that. I mean, you can weave them in, but mm-hmm. really lead with your specialty, that niche, um, whether that's, you know, the buyer or the kind of property or both. 
that's going to be where your power lies. Yep. Cool. Hopefully that helped. Yeah, that was fun. All right. Let me put that in the answered folder. (laughs) Uh, Let's see here. I think the next one that we got in date order is from Mike Bird. Oh, Mike's a good friend of the show. Let's see what Mike had to say. Hey, Jonathan and Rochelle. It's Mike Bird from the Career Builders Podcast. I'm curious to know what your take is on building social capital and the role that it plays when you're on the road to authority. Super curious to know what your thoughts are. I just want to say from one podcaster to another, thank you so much. I love you guys and the work that you do. You've changed my life and way to go on 150 episodes. Keep it up. Yeah, thanks, that was nice. Mike? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Mike. Well, they just, that was really sweet. So social capital. I, I don't usually use that term, I, I, but I, so correct me if you think I'm wrong, but to me, that's like building trust in an audience, right? Like, I think so. I mean, more I'm, like social proof. Well, because I think it's different than, I'm, I'm, as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking it's different than proof because as I was listening, I actually thought it's more than just online. But that may be just my interpretation. Yeah, that's true. I could see that too. I just don't think that way. <laughs> I'm a hermit. Well, it's they're integrated in my mm-hmm. mind, and I mean, I think the most successful people in in that arena are people who combine building trust online with then continuing to build it when you have offline interactions with people. Yes. So I think uh, I think it's critical, and I come to. I come to that process, the process of, of doing that very much from the uh, Seth Godin school of marketing, which is just show up and with a posture of service and who, you know, just help people turn strangers into friends and just genuinely uh, care about helping and do it as much as you can for free. So Jill Conrath says the same thing. Uh, there's tons of, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's not new, uh, but I think it's super. I mean, it's if you're in building a service business, um, which maybe you're not. I mean, the road to authority could be a lot of different things, but certainly one of the things as an authority uh, that you might do to fund your mission is to do coaching or mentoring or consulting or some sort of service like that. And I think baking that into your business at every level makes a lot of sense. You know, so if you are, um, if you are building that kind of a business, then yeah, I mean, to me, it's like everything. I don't even, it's almost like, I don't know how to talk about it. It's like fish and water. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's, um, one of the things that's helpful when you think about it is that you build social capital with your audience, i.e. the people that you resonate with. So it's not about going off and doing favors for a million people and never growing your business. It's about figuring out who your people are mm-hmm. and building social capital with those people. I, I mean, I, I know it sounds sort of obvious, but there are people that are just total givers by nature. And I think what we're saying here is give to the people who you resonate with. Mm-hmm that's where it's really going to multiply because when you do that, they're going to pay that forward to somebody else. Right. Like Seth would say the, the uh, people you seek to serve and you're, that's a great point because to me that that's like, it's critically important that the helping that you're doing, if you want to be able to keep doing it, you need to fund the mission somehow. Like you have to keep the lights on and put food on the table. Mm -hmm. So 
how are you going to fund it? And I think um, back in the day, I, I almost want to do air quotes when I air quotes blogged, you know, <coughs> years ago, uh, and it was just a flea market of random ideas that interested me at any given time. Uh, maybe I thought I might be helping someone somewhere. And in fact, I, I come to think of it, I did have a couple of of uh, posts that were weirdly popular. So they must have been helping someone. But it didn't build into anything. It wasn't, it d- didn't have a gravitational pull at the center, like a content solar system. I wasn't, it, it, was, it was a very ineffective way for me to help anybody. And therefore, it was also a really ineffective way to build my business or uh, create a reputation as a thought leader in a space. So it was very, very unfocused. So yeah, that's a really good point, Rochelle. If you, you want to be focused on something, have some kind of focus, either it could be horizontal, you could be just super into relieving back pain or something like that. Um, but I think it's just way easier if you pick a type of person, whether it's a psychographic type of person or a vertical dentists or environmentalists or soccer moms or startup parents and we had Sarah on if you do if you pick that it makes it way easier for you to help them because you they're going to probably have similar kinds of problems and you know you can get better at helping with those kinds of problems that that community has well and you also I mean you've got the, the people that you want to serve but there's also people at the periphery who are influencers and I don't mean that in the social media sense I mean they are centers of influence with what you do And those are people to know as well and to build social capital with. So they could be um, theoretically competitors, but not really. They could be other people in your space. They could be people that, you know, if you're uh, if you're in the startup world, maybe it's people with deep pockets of money who can fund you of all sorts or people who are connected to venture capitalists and, um, and equity funding. So. Yeah, I think you have to keep a, a, you know, a very open mind. And that's why I always go with this idea of resonance, because I just think when you resonate with someone, you'll find a way to help each other. Yeah, that's great. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Hopefully that helped. Okay. All right. So the next question is from Christian Arapov. Sorry if I butchered that. Hey, Jonathan, I'm getting so much value from the podcasts and the templates that you share with us. So my question for you will be, how should I position myself when the projects don't have an end date? Uh, I work as a media buyer in the marketing industry and I help e-commerce brands um, get exposed to, on social medias and scale their product. So um, actually the clients don't have an end date and uh, I usually char- charge by retainer or an hourly rate. So how should I value these projects and how can I get the most out of it? Thank you. Okay. So uh, first I'm going to do the horrible thing and like, and like answer the question he didn't ask, which is <laughs> um, I'll bet you, you could find projects in there for uh, certain situations. So like think of a, think of a, a launch campaign, some kind of a big launch, some sort of a campaign. Um, maybe you don't want to do that kind of work, or maybe I'm wrong and it doesn't exist, but I could imagine taking the skills that you probably have and, uh, and, and applying them to something that does have an end date, does have a launch, does have a, your contribution would have a particular value. 
So if you were going to value price something, I would value price that. I only use value pricing for projects, which I define to be a collaborative endeavor designed to reach a, a particular outcome. So it's, it's something you can't do on your own. You have to collaborate with the client. There's going to be back and forth and meetings and they're going to be creating assets and stuff. And, and it has a, and it, there's a point where it launches, it's done. The project is over. That to me is the perfect situation for value pricing because having a, a sales interview and running the why conversation requires an emotional investment from both parties. It's a pain. It's, it's not simple. And if there's not a enough value in the overall thing, it just doesn't make sense to have the conversation. Uh, so if, if you do in your world, if there is something that you could package up as like a, a three to six to maybe a nine month launch campaign or something like that, then I'd think about value pricing. For ongoing open-ended services, you're already doing what I would do, which is have a, a subscription, basically a productized service a subscription model where they're paying you monthly for access to your expertise. And it sounds like if you're if you're doing some hourly, um, then it leads me to believe that there's some manual, not manual labor you're doing, but I mean like some hands work. It's not just advice you're giving. You're not just advising them. Oh, it's oh. media buying. He's, he's out there. He's actually doing it. Yeah, that's how I heard the question. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I would price that. I think the smallest, the smallest unit of time that you can sell that uh, doesn't, devolve into trading time for money is monthly. And if you do it, if you do, you know, like daily or weekly, that just devolves into or hourly, obviously, that devolves into math very quickly, like, oh, you know, weekly, well, we just assumed that meant you'd be working for us 40 hours a week for this $2,000 or whatever it is. Uh, but monthly, you know, how many hours are in a month? It's, it's there's a different amount every month, people know, you're probably not working weekends. So it starts to get a little, a little vague about exactly how much work you're doing. But I would do it like you you described, uh, paid in advance, a fixed amount every month. And if that is not very profitable for you, then what I would do is look for opportunities to create a new subscription service where you are advisory. So you're just advising someone on an ongoing basis about what they should be doing. So you know, how, you do media buys, but you also know how to do media buys. So there might be a situation where someone has a huge advertising budget or marketing budget and they've got their own media buyer people, but they're not that effective. They could bring you in for X dollars per month, you know, whatever it is, 5,000 a month, 10,000 a month. And you would advise the team on how to make their buys more effective. I, I know absolutely nothing about media buys other than basically what it is. Um, I, I guess people sometimes will charge a percentage of the buy, which never made any sense to me uh, whatsoever. Um, so basically what I'm saying is I think you're already doing the right thing for this kind of a service. But if if you want to grow to something more profitable, it would mean doing a different kind of engagement, either some kind of a, a value priced custom project or an advisory retainer where where someone wants to de-risk uh, these ongoing activities or or cut the cost of these ongoing activities by paying you essentially an insurance policy so that things don't go off the rails and they're not wasting money elsewhere. And then of course, you know, another thing you can do is come up with, with info products or other kinds of products that sell while you sleep and teach people how to do a better job of what it is that you do. I have one other thought. I, I agree with all of that. Um, but you might 
uh, consider a slight pivot in your client base. Now, you didn't say exactly who they are other than marketing, you said marketing agencies, but if you have um, a very small marketing agency, they might want you to do the buys. But if you were to niche up a little bit and go with mid-sized marketing agencies, they might be more interested in having a strategic advisory kind of service. So I, I encourage you to also look at your client base and see if there's a way to maneuver within that a little bit. Yeah, or take it one step farther and jump over to the client side and you could watchdog the agencies. Mm-hmm. Client, paying, client paying yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, because to them, media buying is this this art that they don't understand. It's this big mystery. And so you could be really attractive, to, again, to a larger size organization that, that buys enough media to make your services worthwhile. Excellent. Well. Uh, okay, so this, this next one is from Roy Zakai. Is that how you'd say that? I think so. You have, you have teeny tiny type on your screen, Jonathan. I can hardly see that. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Rochelle. How are you? This is Roy from Israel. First of all, thanks for your valuable podcast. I'm a fan. As a musician and as someone involved in digital marketing consulting for musicians, I would love to know how you would apply positioning in the context of music and musicians. And another question, if I may, in the context of marketing, um, do you see music as something esoteric or just like any product or service? Thanks again and take care. Bye-bye. Juicy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think we should let the musician answer this one first? (laughs) Yeah, so in case you don't know, dear listener, uh, my undergraduate degree is in music from Berkeley, and I, I have I have opinions about this. Um, and, and it's a similar similar sort of perspective, I think, for designers. I, I feel a lot of kinship with uh, or, or designers or illustrators or graphic artists of different kinds. Uh, I've worked with painters, like fine art painters in the past. I think the, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, am I going to be an artist or am I going to be a business person? Because they're not, they would cause you to make different choices. And you could have different parts of your life where during the day you do music for business and at night you do it for art. Uh, but there, it's two very different roads. And one of the reasons I would point to that my uh, music career failed, other than the fact that I wasn't that great, was that... I never made that decision. I was I, I wanted to act like an artist when I wanted to, and I wanted people to pay me handsomely for it. And it just it it was not it was not smart. Uh, and I should have known better because I went to school for like the business of music and songwriting and stuff. So here's here's what I would say. Let's just say that you don't want it to just be a hobby, and you know you, for your day job you're gonna work in a Starbucks or the post office or something. So if you if you want to make money with your music, uh, it comes to this question: Well, what's the value of music broadly, and what's the value of your music, and where where are you going to get the highest value for music? I think the most obvious example of the highest possible value of music would be in like a, a major motion picture. If you take the music out of Harry Potter, it's not the, it's not good. It's not the same movie, so or movies. So if you want to apply value pricing to music, uh, you are going to be controlled by the forces of 
my max price value formula, which is desire times buying power divided by availability of options. So if you if you have someone who has really high desire, they really, really, really need music, and they've got really high buying power, they get millions of dollars to spend on this music that they really want, and the number of available options is zero, then your price basically goes to infinity, or at least to the, the extent of their budget. But if you are undifferentiated from the the next hundred musicians in line behind you, no one can tell the difference in a meaningful way between you and the next person. And the buying power is very low. Maybe it's a coffee shop that you know wants you to play guitar in the corner and they haven't got that much money to spend on it and they don't really care that much either. Then naturally the price that you can set is going to be very, very low because there's nothing in it for them. But if you are, like I said, if you're extremely unique, you're John, like John Williams is not haggling over prices or, or billing by the hour. Like he's probably got a waiting list of people that he won't even, won't even talk to who are trying to write him checks for millions of dollars. So it boils down to finding someone who wants music really bad, has a lot of money and thinks you're the only option. And how do you, how do you create that? Well, first you pick the target market, you specialize, you distance yourself from the crowd, you make yourself unique in some way and you become that. And you, no one's, no one's, no one starts out famous. No one is born, you know, I don't know, Bjork. You're not born Bjork. I mean, I guess she was technically, but she's not like the persona, you know, you're not born Annie Leibovitz. They built that persona through like years of, of, uh, really specific kind of work for a specific kind of people or a specific kind of product that they put out and they created a brand. So you know, is that easy? No, it's brutal. It's really, really hard. Uh, but it, to me, that's, that's the obvious, the obvious path. Well, but it, what I like about, about what he's suggesting though, is it sounds like he's specializing in digital marketing for musicians. And what I love about that specialty, assuming you're really good at digital marketing is that you understand the musician mindset. You understand the business of being a musician and that you understand this idea of how do you market presumably a, a bunch of different kinds of musicians, although maybe you have a specialty within that. Maybe you work with, I don't know, jazz musicians or um, I guess there's hard rock doesn't really exist anymore. Does it? Ouch. Um, <laughs> okay. Hard rock, bluegrass, you know, ska, whatever. Um, so I, I think that you've got the opportunity because you really understand your audience and the struggles they go through being a performing musician, making money to render them a unique service. So I would absolutely use the fact that you're a musician to position yourself to do digital marketing for musicians. And I, I, I kind of go back to our Heck Yeah Headlines episode where that would be a good starting point is to think about the kinds of problems that musicians have relative to marketing themselves digitally and start there. Yes, that's all excellent. And I am... Uh, the name escapes me, but there's a book uh, about the sort of modern business of music. If that's the, you know, it's not, not exactly sure who you're specializing in, but it could be, it could be worth reading at least looking into, but I, I wish I could think of the name, but we'll put it in the show notes, but it's a, it's kind of like the modern music business book that comes highly recommended by, you know, people who know. Is that written by the blogger? 
gosh, I can't think of his name. He's a really influential kind of in-your-face music blogger. Oh, uh, uh, Lefts- Bob Lefsetz. Yeah, yes. I don't, th- I don't think so. I think it was written by like Marshmello's manager. So anyway, <laughs> so we don't know what we're talking about, but hopefully, hopefully uh, you can find the show notes and there'll be a link to um, that book. It comes very highly recommended. I think, I think I first heard about it from Derek Sivers, who absolutely knows about how to make money as a musician. And, uh, he's, when anybody ever asks him a question about how to be a successful musician, he's like, step one, read this book, but I just can't ah, remember the name of it. Is he, Cause he just published a book about musicians as well. Yeah. That's probably, I haven't read it yet, but it's called, uh, your people and music or your music and people. And, uh, ostensibly it's about, you know, connecting with an audience and building a career. And I mean, there's, uh, who else? Kevin Kelly's thousand fans thing. There's a, there's a whole bunch of. Uh, information that you can read about on Kevin Kelly's site, which is, I think, kk.org. Well, we can link to all of this stuff, but I I really love the music question. It's one I've wrestled with, like, what's the value of music, right? Because I'm like a musician and the value pricing guy, so. Well, I think the other thing on this that would be really helpful in terms of positioning is to really develop a point of view about the music business for the artists that you're going to represent or that you're going to, who will be your clients. And, you know, if you've already read all those books and you've got some deep thinking about what the music business is and and how it works, that's one thing. If you haven't got that yet, that is a wonderful exercise. Work through all of the content you can find, but then make up your own mind. Come up with your own point of view about music and how that relates to digital marketing. What's your point of view? Is it, is it necessary? How does it work? What makes someone successful at digital marketing with their music versus someone who isn't? So the more specific you get about things like that, it gives you content. It gives you, you know, the heck yeah headlines we talked about that kind of pull in your unique, uh, your unique client, the ones that you are, uh, your sweet spot that you really want to serve and they're going to love you once they find you. Exactly. Great. Hopefully that helped. I feel like I feel like we basically said go read a bunch of books, but <laughs> yeah, we kind of stumbled over that one. It, it's it's interesting. It's very interesting. But I, yeah. I think you've got you've got an interesting niche going there. Absolutely. Uh, cool. I think we have time for one more. What do you say? Oh, why not? <laughs> uh, what we got. Let's do uh, Joe Jacoby. Oh, Joe. Another friend of the show. Yeah, exactly. We interviewed Joe. Uh, geez, I don't know how long ago it was now, but um, a, a year ago around Christmas. Excellent. It was right around the holidays. I'm glad one of us has a memory because <laughs> <laughs> it show ain't me. Uh, okay, here we go. Here's Joe's question. Bon dia, Rochelle. Bon dia, Jonathan. Uh, felicitats uh, per episode since the uh, this is Joe Jacoby with a Catalan congratulatory greeting, and I do have two questions for you. My first question is, if you imagine that the title of your podcast, The Business of Authority, uh, were a book title, and you had to come up with a subtitle for the book title, what would the subtitle be? And my second question is, it kind of plays off of the subtitle question and using some of Jonathan's vocabulary. If we are at episode 150 and you look at where things are now, 
Let's look at episode 250. It's about two years down the road, recording one episode a week for the next two years. What does the uh, future desired state look like for the business of authority at episode 250? Thank you guys so much. And it was a privilege to be a guest on your podcast. Thanks. Oh, Joe, <laughs> you're going to drag us kicking and screaming into strategy, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for that. I really appreciate the uh, the thanks and the question. So, uh, I mean, I w- what would you say subtitle wise? Because I've got a pretty clear answer for this one. Oh, well, I, actually, I'd like to hear yours because mine is more. I'm not sure the words. I know the thought behind mm-hmm. it. What, what have you got? It would be the same as the subtitle of the podcast. Uh, uh, which is how to go from six figure to seven while increasing your impact on the world. And we we wrote that at the very, very beginning. In fact, it, it could probably be updated, but it would be something like that. It could be, I think over time, our language has kind of shifted into, maybe we'd say how to fund your mission while increasing your impact on the world and not worry mm-hmm. so much about the dollars and cents of it. Uh, but yeah, to me, that 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 would be what it's about. Yeah, and there's there's a, a subtext of that, Jonathan. You and I haven't really talked about this, but there's also this idea that we want people to really be happy in what they do, and so the the idea in that is that it, is that we're happy when we've got a big mission that's about changing the world. We're happy when we're funding that mission. We're feeling good about what we do. But I, I also think as we want our lives to be happy, we want to focus on the things that we really love and find other people to do the things we don't. So it's, it's about a happiness state too, I think. Mm-hmm. And then what about the long-term question? So what, what would, this is, this we're about to have like a, a strategy session, <laughs> like a private strategy session on the show. That's cool. So in, in two years, it actually, that makes me, that's like, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> I know. It feels like, it feels like a long way away, but here right. we are at three years already. Yeah. It flies by. So what, what, what would you want? Well, here's the thing for, for me, this is all about impact. And so I would really like to know that we're helping people make the transition from traditional employment into something that looks like consulting, freelancing, you know, whatever you want to call it, but where you're hanging your own shingle and you're making money off your own expertise. So I would like to ease the transition for people at, at the beginning, yes, but also at every point in between. Because you know, when you first start a business, an authority business, you have a certain set of, of problems and challenges. And then once you get to the point where you know, you're earning six figures, so you're like, okay, I, I'm okay financially, but now what? Now I'm, I'm on this hamster wheel. So how do I create things that can get me off that? And that's when people start to get really interested in the road to authority. And then once you do that and you're starting to create those things, there's growing pains around that. And so, again, there's more transition. So that's how I see us together on this podcast is trying to help people through those different transitions and, you know, learn from the things that we and our guests have done great and the things that we really sucked at and would do differently if we had another chance. Yes, I'm nodding vigorously along with all of that. We're totally aligned on that. Uh, the, on the time scale, once we're five years in, theoretically, we could start having listeners' success stories that that 
you know, bubble to the surface. Maybe they come on as guests and say, you know, I've been listening to this show. You know, for, I listened to since the beginning, and I started to follow the advice. Uh, you know, in the first year, and and now look, you know, kind of a before and after because that's you know, five years is enough time to to make a full transition from you know wherever you were to this new sort of reality, and mm. that would be the most gratifying thing I could imagine. Uh, would be people just like you know I, I you know obviously we wouldn't be the sole influence but if if somebody felt like they learned something from the show and it had a tangible impact on their lives that would be great i mean what that's right in right in the yeah. subtitle increase your impact like that's what that's what drives Rochelle and i it's like to hear more about the impact that all of this talking in a empty room <laughs> has on people's uh, lives and you know and then hopefully that they find a way and as authorities and thought leaders yet they're I'm sure it's going to be baked in that they are going to spread it also. So create yes. like um, a virtuous cycle. That would be amazing. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was kind of getting goosebumps when you're talking about that and I, I get them when somebody sends a very specific thank you where they say, you know what, there was this thing I was re- wrestling with and I listened to this episode and I figured it out. Thank you. And they move on. I love that. That's, I mean, I live for that. Yeah. Same here. That's, yeah, that's exciting. And it's not about getting the thanks. It really isn't about that. It's about knowing that people are making a change for the better. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the exciting part. At least, yeah. I was starting to say at least for me, but I know it is for you too. Right. Yeah. You, if you're just like shouting into a vacuum, you'll stop. You know, if, if you're like, is anybody listening? Like, or, you know, I send out all these emails. If people didn't, say like, wow, thanks. That was, it's one thing for somebody to not unsubscribe, but that's not, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, just, okay. Like, all right, is anybody reading this? Like, you know, like, is this thing on? So exactly. uh, it's really, it's very inspiring. It's sort of like, it's a virtuous cycle. It's like a ratchet that just goes in, in a, the positive direction. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Cool. Well, great question. Thanks everybody for sending those in. I think it was probably a Probably a good point to wrap it up for this time around. Uh, If you have already sent us in a question, you can rest assured that we have it and we'll get to it on a future episode. We're definitely going to be doing these periodically. Uh, So yeah, if you, if, if you have not yet sent in a question and have one, just make a voice recording and email it to me. Uh, My email address is on the website for the podcast and uh, we'll add it to the queue. Awesome. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And this is the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.